Welcome to the Bike Talk with Dave podcast. I'm Dave, your host, and I appreciate that you tune in to listen. Okay, so before we begin this week's episode, I have to give a shout out to young Mallory. She's eight years old, and just this morning I woke up early to join my wife, Dee, on the daily 515 training ride. That's 5.15 a.m., which is super rare for me. But Mallory and her dad, who is a regular on that ride, joined in on their tandem to knock off the last few miles that she needed to hit 500 miles riding for the year. She's eight. It was a treat to stop by her house along the route for a little mid-ride celebration of the milestone. She and her dad are training for Ragbri, and she's done single days of the annual ride across Iowa, but she's never done the whole thing, and she's really developed a love of riding and seems super excited to complete the seven days of riding in late July. So Mallory, from D, myself, and the whole Bike Talk family, congratulations on hitting your 500 miles today. So now on to this week's episode. This is my official Unbound episode, and while I think it'd be super fun to join in on all the reindeer games in Emporia and talk to all the pros who challenge each other in all the biggest gravel races around the country, I think it's also super cool to talk to some of the other 4,000 people for whom this may be a life race. Their first 200 miler, or maybe not their first, but they're trying to beat the sun or even just trying to finish. Like our friend Brian Foss from Georgia, who we met at the Rattlesnake Gravel Grind, which he was using as training ride for Unbound. He had a long, challenging day in Kansas, but he did manage to nurse his bike through the mud and his body through the heat, humidity, and thunderstorms to make it to the finish line. Or our friend Dr. Mary Beth Orr from Kansas, who you might remember from episode 23 a year ago when she finished the Unbound 200 and then a week later finished the Des Moines Ironman race. Yes, a full Ironman. So this is crazy. She had the same two races on her schedule this year, though the Ironman in Des Moines was only a half this year or a 70.3 miler. But Thick mud eventually forced her out of Unbound last week, and she did make it to Des Moines. This is amazing. Dee and I are standing on the run course cheering on our friends, and Mary Beth, as she's running by in the race, recognizes me and stops by to say hi and gives, us, gives me a great big hug. She did go on to finish the half Ironman on what was a cloudy, almost chilly day. It was perfect for the run. Congratulations, Mary Beth, on a great couple of weeks at Unbound and the Des Moines Half Ironman. There's so many great stories, and today is one of them. Daniel Barvin, who was using Unbound as a target, a challenge for himself, not only to complete the 200-mile race, but to raise a ton of money for his foundation and the legacy. It's a nonprofit he started, which is focused on the pre-symptomatic community of ALS and FTD. As Daniel himself, after losing his grandfather, his dad, an aunt, and an uncle, had his DNA tested for the gene that carries ALS and discovered that yes, he's the lucky carrier of the gene and has better than a 95% chance of developing ALS in his lifetime. 
I'd love to tell you his story, but I'm sure he'd be better at it. He's a great dude. I loved meeting him, and he's got a great story. Not only of a super challenging day in Kansas, but a story of hope and optimism. So without further ado, I'd like to introduce you to Daniel Barvin. Daniel Barvin, welcome to the show. Glad to have you here today. Thanks so much, Dave. It's a pleasure to be here, especially after uh, what I thought was probably one of the hardest cycling experiences I've ever had in my life. Uh, and that also led to a phenomenal amount of support for a nonprofit that I'm looking forward to tell you all of, telling you all about. So lots to share, and uh, let's kick it off. Yeah, absolutely. You hit on two of the things. I feel like you you have a story. Uh, if you envision an upside down tree, you've got two branches that kind of come together in this story and lead to the main trunk, and that main trunk kind of came together on the streets of Emporia, Kansas, uh, I don't know, five days ago or so, mm-hmm. and, uh, and was continuing to be written through the Flint Hills of, of Kansas. So I'm excited to, to tell these two stories and then how they merge. But first of all, we got to know the subject of the story, and that's you. Who the heck are you? Where are you from? What's, uh, what's your origin story? Sure. So uh, Daniel Barvin grew up in Houston, Texas, the youngest of three boys, uh, and a really just phenomenal family to be a part of. Uh, growing up was, was full of great times, um, but also some tragedy hit our family early on. Um, you know, I can't really remember my childhood without uh, linking it to neurodegenerative disease. Um, when I was about eight years old, my grandfather uh, started suffering from what we thought at the time was Alzheimer's. And the relationship that I had with that man, which was beautiful, he was so fun, a great baker, just uh, someone who could t- truly work with his hands. Uh, and that deteriorated because of his condition. And as a young person not understanding why those things were happening, it was, it was incredibly difficult. Um, and, you know, as childhood progressed, we really, uh, soon after had another case of neuro- neurodegenerative disease with my uncle being diagnosed with ALS, um, five days after my grandfather's passing. So two quick hits in my childhood. Oh my. Did you, for sure, two quick hits. Did you ever figure out that your grandpa had ALS or... Did you always just, so that must have been 20 years ago or so, um, uh, based on your age? Yeah, um, so, you know, it would take until 2016. This was all around 2000 and 2002. Uh, and it would take until 2016 and the passing of my uncle, my aunt, and sadly my father, before we ever understood that there was a, a deep connection between all of their suffering and all of their disease. But for... 16 years, we lived in this murky world of of misunderstanding, uh, of not being able to have a diagnosis with with which we could point to, you know, point to and blame behaviors on. Uh, And I think especially as a young person kind of watching my grandfather first experience those symptoms and losing that relationship. uh, And then sadly, my father had early onset dementia uh, around his mid 40s. And that was very difficult for me as a teenager 
trying to understand what was happening and trying to uh, hold on to that bond that I had with my father, despite his, his difficulties in life. Um, and so in 2016, we found out that my father carried what's called the C9-ORF72 gene mutation, which is a causative gene mutation for both ALS and frontotemporal dementia. Um, and so we believe that is what my grandfather wow. had and what my father had, the FTD, and then my aunt and uncle had ALS. Oh, okay. Oh, huh, that's crazy, isn't it? it? It was, you know, incredibly difficult. I think, you know, on my side, um, each loss kind of occurred as I gained knowledge, gained understanding, empathy, uh, as I grew up. And so when I saw my grandfather and uncle sadly experience these diseases, I'm not sure that I understood the entirety of the, the situation. Um, but when my father started experiencing symptoms and then my aunt sadly was diagnosed with ALS, uh, when I was in my twenties, I, you know, I fully saw how brutal this disease was, not only on the patient, but the family, the financial situation, the community, you know, every, uh, brutal detail of, of that disease state. So, uh, it's been something that's truly impacted the future of my life and how I wanted to live my life in this world and, and hopefully have affect change for so that n none of this would ever happen again. It just had to be so hard to watch your family, uncle, aunt, dad, grandpa, and not understand what was going on. I can't even imagine that. You know, the, the, I think the hardest thing is, one, maybe ignorance is bliss. And the idea that as a young person, not knowing that this might affect my future is something that maybe is a blessing. Um, it didn't hinder my life in terms of uh, relationships, um, pursuits, or, or cloud my mind that um, I may one day potentially have this disease and the fear or anxiety of that. Um, so I do think that there was some blessing in not knowing at a young age. Uh, however, I, all, there was obviously the anxiety of, well, this is most likely related between my family members and, and what is the cause? And you had me as a young person, you know, trying to Google uh, and find answers as to how ALS could be so prevalent in a family and coming back with nothing. And so um, definitely a lot of anxiety, but I think I was able to push it to the side for the time being. And um, but that, would, that would all come to a head later on, of course. The story continues from there. Um, tell me about your discovery. Sure. So uh, shortly after my father passed away, we had an autopsy performed because we, his entire experience of dementia he went undiagnosed. Uh, no doctor could find out what was ailing him. And we wanted answers. We wanted something that we could, one, put the blame on, but two, put this idea to rest. Uh, and through that autopsy, we found that he carried the C9-ORF72 gene mutation, which suddenly gave us so many answers about the linkage to his family members and their disease. But also we found out that that 
unfortunately was a hereditary genetic mutation, and there was a 50% chance that I would be a carrier of such gene mutation. And uh, we also then learned that C9, uh, as it's called, uh, has a incredibly high incidence rate for those who carry it, uh, somewhere in the realm of 95% um, likelihood that you'll develop one of those two diseases before the age of 80. Um, and so it was quite shocking. I found out that I unfortunately carried the gene uh, about six months after I got married. So, you know, this elated feeling of coming together with my wife and, you know, this beautiful bond, and we're going to live this amazing life for the next 50 years. Uh, and then that future that we had planned potentially not being so certain uh, was thrust upon us. And, you know, it, it took, I'd say, a few months to regain composure and um, understanding. But I, I do think that it was so vital to have my wife there by my side um, to support me through that discovery, um, that incident. And, you know, even though she said, Daniel, we're, we're, so, we're too young to have things like this happen to us. Um, but I think we've had, you know, growing up, I had a lot happen to me. And I, if I look back, I think that all of those experiences with my family members kind of maybe prepared me to understand and accept, uh, that news when I finally found out. Yeah. That, whew, describe the day you found out, like what goes through your head? What's that like? So, you know, the, the, Good thing about um, this day, the state we're in in this day and age is we have what are called longitudinal research studies. Uh, so people like myself who have a family history of ALS or FTD can go and find care through these research studies. Uh, and they help you understand your genetic status. They align you with a genetic counselor to talk about um, your risk of developing the disease, if you, if you are positive, your ability to do family planning, uh, X, Y, and Z. And then for potentially the rest of your life, they are doing, uh, you know, quarterly um, meetings with you to test all types of biomarkers to understand what, it, what are the earliest signs of ALS. As, as we are those who are most at risk of the disease, were the best to watch um, for signs of change. And so it was through that study that I found out. And my wife and I flew up to Boston where it's held. It's called uh, the DIALS study, Dominant Inherited ALS. And, you know, I had the inkling that I was positive. Um, you know, I just thought, what are the chances that I'm going to, you know, this, is, this isn't going to hit me. Um, based on past experience, based on, you know, you just form all these stories in your head, right? Uh, and so I think when I found out, I was a bit numb to emotion, you know, a bit, I just, I thought that was going to happen, and, and it did, and I, I'm not crying, I'm not elated, obviously, but I'm just trying to comprehend it all. Um, my wife was pretty besides herself. 
um, she saw uh, deeply the impact this had on my mother and while my father was experiencing uh, FTD and probably saw herself in that position in the future uh, as a caretaker and I, I just don't think newlyweds want to imagine the future in that light uh, so early on in the relationship. For sure not, yeah. But, Absolutely uh, not. And you found out six months after you were married? Just about. We got married in March and I found out at the end of the year. Yeah, wow. So you got to think about kids too. Exactly. You know, the reason that we, we found out was that we wanted to have kids. We wanted to start a family. And um, I knew that if we were going to start a family, I wanted to be... Sorry, let's take a step back. We learned that through a genetic counselor, we could do family planning, uh, adoption. You could abstain from having children to not pass the genetic traits on. Or you could do what's called IVF and PGD, post-genetic diagnostics. And that was very enticing for us. Uh, you could have your own children. How, uh, but through that process, basically they create embryos. And then they test the embryos to see which ones carry my genetic mutation. And those are not utilized. So there's no genetic modification. There's no any of that. It's just we're going to look at the embryos, see which ones are healthy. We're going to ensure that we only implant healthy embryos. Pretty amazing. And so with that knowledge that we... My mind is blown out of this room right now. <laughs> you know, I, I do look at this, you know, in the pre-symptomatic world, I find myself, there's, there's no intervention at the moment. Um, there was just a, a, a drug released by uh, Biogen called Tofresin that's showing efficacy in SOD1, another genetic mutation for familial ALS or genetic ALS. But there's no pre-symptomatic intervention to prevent the disease from occurring. And, you know, I look at IVF and PGD as a cure. You know, I have two children. Uh, my son Kai is three and our daughter Hana is 10 months old. And this disease and genetic hereditary disease will end with me. I will be the last one. That is... Dude... That is a cure. That is, it is putting up a roadblock to the progression of a disease. It's yeah. it's amazing. Um, like so that, you, you know, can literally, if everybody did what you're doing, you could end the disease. Boom! Stopped. There are, you know, <laughs> yes, there are. Unfortunately, are many um, things in the way in terms of uh, equity, affordability. So many reasons that IVF and PGD won't be widespread and everyone won't be able to do it. Um, however, yes, there was a, a really interesting TED talk where a, a woman was the second generation of a hereditary disease where her grandfather was the first to ever have it. Uh, her grandfather had one son and that her father had her and a sister. And both of those women decided not to have children and poof that hereditary disease that could have turned into a Huntington's that could have turned into a genetic ALS was forever erased from the future. I mean that you, you, now we see the power of, you know, having knowledge, being able to understand how we will 
uh, play a role in the future of, the, of our uh, generations, of, of our community, and you know what power we have to potentially change what's been done in the past. Um, you know, so going back a bit, I do look at the ability to be tested, to be given that knowledge as such a, a fortunate decision, right? If you look back at my yep. parents' generation, they had no um, understanding that this was in their future. They had no time to plan. They had no time to do things like, you know, they didn't know, oh man, I better go do Unbound because life might not be, you know, last forever. They, they just had no grasp of the things that I now can um, affect in my life. So I think we've come so far. Uh, and I think that anyone who's in this hereditary disease world, um, you know, there's so much care and support out there. It's, it's really our mission and our goal that we, that we go out and, and take advantage of it. You used Unbound, and we're going to get into this, but you used Unbound to help raise money for a nonprofit organization called End the uh, Legacy. Yes. And you mentioned the, the dad who had two daughters and then the two daughters didn't have kids. And that's one way to end the legacy is you know that you're a carrier, you know you're going to pass it on, so you just plain old don't pass it on. And, I mean, yeah, but the human race is kind of dependent on people having kids, right? So if nobody has any more kids because they don't want to pass on the disease, then, I mean, eventually, right? So the what you figured out is how to have kids that will not pass on the disease and end the legacy and still raise a family of your own kids, you and your wife will, I mean, gosh, I see many years ahead of you and I promise you someday they will be graduating from college. It will have like it, it does go on. Like, like the kids do grow up and it's awesome. Enjoy every day. I'm sure I do not need to tell you to enjoy every day. Um, <laughs> But, uh, but holy moly, um, you must just be embracing every time the sun comes up. You, you know, I, I, I think I do to some degree. Um, I think what the knowledge I have of my genetic future, what it has done is it's really kicked me in the butt to say, I need to take action and I need to do something to, to affect change in this community. You know, when I found out in 2017 that I was a genetic carrier uh, of C9 or 72, I Googled, um, I went to every ALS organization and said, hey guys, I've got this incredibly compelling story. I want to, one, stand up and tell the story, and two, I want to create resources for those like myself. And unfortunately, I didn't receive a, a positive response that this was something they wanted to uh, get behind. And so I, I saw an incredible lack of resources for the pre-symptomatic community. You know, in fact, there being zero. No one standing up and telling their story. And as someone who went through this experience, uh, who stumbled a bit in the process of finding out my genetics, you know, all, 
So there's so many steps to being a, a gene carrier. Um, we shouldn't all stumble at the same time through the same mistakes. We should be sharing knowledge. We should be collaborating. We should be uh, fighting for a better future for ourselves. And that was not occurring in 2017. And um, what, it, what happened is I was offered to tell my story, my family's story, at a, a film festival called Real Abilities here in Houston about a month after I found out my genetic status. And they said, Daniel, we're going to show a film on ALS, and then we want you to share your family's story about ALS with a uh, local high school. And there were 800 students who sat in the auditorium to watch the movie and then hear my story. And I just felt so compelled by sharing, you know, the most intimate side of myself with them. And I, you know, I could see this response. Every eyeball was on me. And, you know, I, I, we truly connected. And I think that experience just, you know, gave me the ambition, gave me the understanding that I could really do something by telling this story and affecting change. Uh, and that then led to reaching out to all the ALS organizations, saying this is something I want to do, um, trying to get my story out wherever I could, and then collaborating with other patients. Basically, I put a post on one of the Facebook groups that um, we all kind of share our most intimate genetic mutation lives on, and uh, a few people said, hey, I want to team up with you. We, we also believe that there's a lack of resources. And we want to ensure a better future for our community. And so that kicked off what is now and the legacy. Uh, and what we have done is really fight for awareness, uh, funding, improved access to therapies, improved access to research, improved access to care. Uh, every which way in which a patient should be treated, we are fighting for. Because currently, we are not treated as patients. In this you know, medical world, a genetic carrier like myself cannot go to a doctor. The only thing that that doctor will tell me is, I don't really know about your genetic condition. You don't have ALS yet. There's nothing I can do for you. And they'll then put on my medical record that I sought care for ALS. And I will be barred from insurance if I ever try to buy private insurance. The only sure. current opportunity for care is through these research studies where everything is de-identified so there's no risk to life insurance long-term care insurance things of that sort uh, and we are fighting to have a, a seat at the table to be able to voice our concerns voice our needs provide support for the generational trauma that each of us has experienced not only do we have this incredible burden that we may one day have the disease? But we've all lived through three, four, you know, multiple generations of disease. And, you know, that all needs to be cared for. Um, so that's what End the Legacy is. And that's what I was fortunate enough to raise $33,000 for uh, on the way to Unbound. And I'm hoping that... You know, the, I only, unfortunately, did 124 miles of the 200 miles, but it was a brutal 124 miles. 
and I'm hoping that effort will will continue on. Yeah, where where does somebody go for uh, to support the your cause? Let's not end it at thirty three thousand. Let's let's push that envelope. Agreed. So uh, I've created a fundraising link at givebutter.com slash end the legacy. Uh, and you can hear, see my story. You can see a picture of my family, uh, my father's generation in which only one of four siblings is still survive, is still alive today, which is awful. Um, and then there's links to, to resources if one might find themselves in a similar position how they can receive help through our organization, uh, links to podcasts. You know, a big part of why I'm doing this is trying to do what I saw was done by Angelina Jolie for BRCA, the breast cancer uh, gene mutation. And, you know, I saw, well, I mean, maybe I just saw stories. I'm sure I was too young to recognize this impact when 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 it occurred. But um, testing rates for the BRCA gene skyrocketed after Angelina Jolie came out and said she had it and got a double mastectomy. That story, her standing up and saying, here I am, washed away the stigma and fear that previously stopped women from finding out their genetic status. And I think that the, you know, besides all the, the advocacy work we do on the um, research and access to therapy side, a big component of this is empowering people to say, this story is not so unique. You know, here I am telling mine, you don't have to fight this alone. We're in this together. And, you know, hopefully that message of courage and inspiration goes far and wide, not only for people in my genetic mutation community, but for, for anyone. Yeah. Yep, no doubt. Speaking of courage, uh, we talked about the two branches coming together, and the other branch is lining up for Unbound to help raise money for End the Legacy. Tell me about your, like, are you a cyclist? Have you ridden your whole life? Or did you think, oh, that sounds stupid. I'm going to go do that. It wasn't. It was well organized. Uh, Emporia was a phenomenal host. Um, I am a cyclist. I love the sport. It's something that I've you know grew up. I wouldn't say I grew up in the sport, but I grew up riding my bike around, uh, and then kind of got into the mountain biking space after college recreationally. Did a few races here and there, uh, and slowly I have been trying to figure out the best cycling um, platform for myself, whether that's mountain biking, road biking, Zwift, gravel. um, And I've just came upon uh, a gravel bike about uh, earlier in the year. And that kind of inspired me to start taking adventures and doing big, exciting things. You know, I, I saw riding uh, on my local bike trails as, as not being that exhilarating and wanted more. Um, and so I, I looked up what was gravel racing because I'd, I'd really only heard about it, but never done any you know research to find out where the races were, or what they were doing. Uh, and watching the videos of Unbound from last year were just so inspiring of the ultimate challenge the ultimate challenge 
uh, on, on two wheels. And so I, I got it in my head that I would go and, and try my best at that race. But the problem was I only got that idea in my head around March or April of this year. Oof. And as you probably know, there's a lottery to enter Unbound that people enter, you know, a year in advance. They're probably signing up for the lottery now, just after it ended. And so I found myself without a ticket to the event, with no place to stay, and with just the ambition and dream to, to do this race and, and, and raise funds for and the legacy. Uh, and everything kind of worked out in the most beautiful way. Um, I posted on various Facebook groups saying, this is my story. I'm trying to get to Unbound to raise funds for End the Legacy. Can you help me in any way? I reached out to Lifetime uh, and I was eventually given a pass by Visit Emporia and someone through Visit Emporia oh. that gave me a pass to attend Unbound. And then this absolutely incredible family, the, the Curtises, heard my story on the Facebook group and reached out to me and said, hey, Daniel, we'd love to host you. And they were the most gracious, you know, hospitable hosts one could ever imagine when flying across the country to do, to do a 200-mile race. Uh, and so all you know, the, the world aligned to allow me to do this, and all that was left was for me to ride the miles. Absolutely. So did you get the trip March... Oh man, that's like two months, two and a half months. Yeah. Did you get the miles? Did you get the training in? So, you know, I'm always cycling. Um, I'm always in a pursuit of in, enhanced athletic ability. So I think that there was, you know, I was consistently riding prior to Unbound. However, mm -hmm. the greatest distance I did uh, from March until the race was about 30 miles. Oh, boy. And that pales in comparison to what, you know, Unbound requires. But I figured that by doing structured training, you know, in the hour to an hour and a half um, duration uh, would lead to increased, you know, ability and, and hopefully get me through the race. I did boost my FTP by about 30 watts in that time, so that that was phenomenal. Um, and I, you know, I suffered because I did not do any considerable distance. And I think what ended up hurting so much on the race was my hands and my triceps and just oh, holding sure. myself up on the bike <laughs> was, you know, brutally painful come mile 80. Um, so, you know, there were so many experiences in the actual ride that I was most definitely not prepared for. I, I was chuckling because I was wondering how those 30 watts of FTP served you when you were walking through the mud at mile 10. <laughs> <laughs> Very poorly. Um, you know, I think I, when we got to the mud, you still, you know, the start of the race was incredibly exciting we take off, uh, and everyone is just giddy to start. You know, we form up pace lines. We're running at 20 miles an hour. I mean, this is, you know, it's beautiful. I'm like, this couldn't be the better start to a race. And then, bam, we hit this mud. And it just seemed to go on for absolutely ever. 
you know, uh, I think I'd heard from years past, from the research I'd done, do not try to ride through the mud. And you had a great group of, you know, riders around me who were trying to say, hey, keep, play it safe, let's just walk it. Um, so I think that was wise advice. But walking through what I think was four miles of mud. That's a long way. You know, every, I think everyone got blisters. I think I, you know, smashed my toes in my shoes. Uh, and it just sapped a great amount of energy uh, and enthusiasm out of a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Like, but on the counter side, right after we got out of the mud, everyone was so thrilled to be back on their bikes that we, again, just kind of took off at race pace. I mean, I was not ready for race pace for 200 miles. <laughs> that was not in my game plan. But the excitement, you know, was so compelling. And I think you, know, you get these pace lines and you want to keep up. Uh, and I started noticing my, my heart rate getting into the 160s, 150s, which is not where I wanted to be. Um, and so that was probably mile 20 to, let's call it, the first rest stop at mile 74. And I, you know, through the whole preparation, I had been preparing, okay, I need to drink enough water, I need to drink enough carbs, eat enough carbs, do the nutrition fueling the best I possibly can, because that's going to be the linchpin. If that fails, everything else is going downhill. And so when I pulled into the first stop at mile 74, I had seven pieces of sports nutrition that I had eaten along with 110 ounces of water, maybe even more than that because there was a water stop before. So I was on the nutrition plan, 100%. However, my body was kind of failing. (laughs) At mile 65 or so, I just started getting full body cramps. Oh, no. And uh, that, you know, it went from doing 200 plus watts with ease to... Oh my God, 130 watts feels brutal. And so that was, you know, the mile 65 to 74 to the the checkpoint was incredibly arduous. And I sat down, I ate the most food I've ever eaten in my life at the rest (laughs) stop. We got a bit cleaned up from the mud and I just said, okay, I've got to keep going. Um... And so I get back on the bike and I'm still cramping, still, you know, extreme discomfort. And at that point I started thinking about, okay, 200 miles probably isn't going to happen if I'm hurting this bad now. What can I possibly achieve? And then how do I get off the course? You know, I, I mean, I may have gotten off at mile 90 if someone would have taken me. <laughs> Um, but because, because unfortunately my condition did not get any better from after the rest stop through till the time I pulled off, it only deteriorated. So consistent cramping, um, you know, barely the ability to hold myself up on the bike going, you know, walking up most every hill after mile 80 or 90, uh, it was just like. Uh, it was all taken out of me. And I then had to make it to mile 124 to the next water stop before I could even get off the course. <laughs> what was your escape plan? Yeah, how did you get back to 
So, you know, we, I, I uh, hired lifetime support. And so they bring you your SAG bags at each rest stop. And then they also are supposed to pick you up. However, it was a really brutal day. We not only went through that four-mile hike of mud, which I think took a lot of people out of the race early on, but we also, you know, we're in the middle of a torrential thunderstorm, you know, around mile 90 for me. Uh, and so I think a lot of people were calling them trying to get off the course. And so every time I tried to call, which is also hard when you're riding the bike and it's raining and your phone's not working, it was just busy and busy and busy. Um, and so I was calling my wife and I said, what should I do? I'm, you know, absolutely dying out here. Uh, and in the end, I actually called my host, Tyler Curtis, uh, from Emporia and said, Hey, you know, uh, he'd been checking in on me throughout the way, which is incredibly kind of him. And I just said, you know what? I'm, I think I'm done. I, I'm hurting incredibly, you know, at, and I'm hurting quite a lot. Uh, I don't see a benefit to staying on the bike till 3 a.m. to get to the end. Um, you know, going a, a bit back into my ALS story and Unbound, um, you know, there was a uh, study that came out linking exercise to ALS. It's basically a study on exercise-induced ALS. Really? And that gave... Everyone with in the pre-symptomatic community pause. Now, and this is only done in symptomatic patients, people who actually have the disease. Looking at their past history, did they were they training for Ironmans when this occurred? Were they what were they doing? What was their exercise level, and how did that have any effect on their development of the disease? It didn't say anything about the pre-symptomatic community, but we kind of all tied our own ideas to it. And so part of me, you know, um, seven years ago, I used to run half marathons to raise funds for the ALS Association because, uh, and the legacy didn't exist. And, um, you know, I wanted to do whatever I could back then to affect change. And I said to myself, you know what, that's probably not good for me, that distance. You know, this exercise-induced ALS study came out and I said, well, I'm going to change my exercise level. You know, one of the reasons I only did an hour to an hour and a half of training rides was because one, I've got two young children and it's hard to get away for you know, considerable amounts of time, but also the understanding of like, I am just going to play it safe in terms of long hours on the bike that might not be good for me and, you know, my longevity. And so I looked at Unbound as, okay, I'm going to go do this one-off thing. I'm not going to, you know, try to do um, race-styled training rides of that, that, that distance because that might not be beneficial. And once I got to the race, that was always in the back of my mind, you know. And then uh, I think that as I started cramping and, you know, having extreme fatigue. I just said, you know what? I think this is the time to call it. Uh, I'm sure someone who did not have my genetic mutation, who did not have all of that built up in their mind may have said, you know what? I'm going to keep going. Um, but I think the, the calculation for me is it's a bit harder. It's a bit riskier in the end. 
<clears throat> you know, I'll give you some insight into to maybe what my genetic mutation means to the to the layman. Um, you know, one analogy is that everyone has five dominoes, everyone, and if all five of those dominoes get knocked over, you get neurodegenerative disease, or you know, let's call it ALS. If you have my genetic mutation, it's as if three of those dominoes are already knocked over. Oh, you know wow. what in your life, whether environmental uh, exposure, what you eat, what you drink, what you do. We, we don't know these things, but we have to, you know, <clears throat> uh, imagine that there are things in our lives that knock over the other two. Because, you know, other people do not have a genetic, a causative genetic mutation like I do. And they still get ALS. And so there's, hmm. you know, for them, potentially a much larger environmental in, in portion to their disease than mine. Um, and that's, you know, a big... Um, driver for myself of how do I uh, gain, you know, be empowered by taking action in my um, daily life and, and health, right? You know, we don't have actual items necessarily to cure the disease, but that's something that I can do to feel empowered like I'm doing something for myself. To uh, keep those dominoes from falling. Exactly. You know, in, in my disease, in my genetic mutation, you know, uh, C9ORF72 drives oxidative stress. Uh, and this maybe will tie into some of the work I'm doing at my, my company, Koi Therapeutics. But uh, that, you know, gene has been present in my body for my entire life. Uh, you know, at some point, that oxidative stress will reach a certain point and it'll go past the limit of healthiness and the disease state will kick in. We don't know when that is. Um, and we believe that, you know, incredible endurance efforts like maybe Unbound probably add some oxidative stress, add inflammation to the body. Uh, and tying this to, to my work at Koya, um, so two and a half years ago, I had been working to create End the Legacy with other patient advocates. We had been connecting with pharma, research, um, advocacy organizations, kind of putting familial and genetic ALS and FTD on the map. And that was wonderful. It was, um, you know, we really created something from scratch. But I saw that I wanted to, to make this my career. And I fortunately had the opportunity to join Koya Therapeutics uh, at the beginning of 2021, almost you know, three or four months after that company was, was founded as the first employee. And my CEO reached out to me based on my experience I had in the ALS community and said, hey, Daniel, cold text me. You know, I'd never heard of him before. Uh, great fan now. And said, hey, Daniel, I'm the CEO of an ALS therapeutic company. Uh, let's chat. And that conversation turned into a job two days later. And I have been, um, you know, I, I, I could, I've never, I've had a lot of jobs uh, in my past. I've been a mechanical engineer by training. I've got my MBA, moved into finance. None have tied passion, mission. Um, you know, I, 
the ability I have to go to work every day and say, wow, we're truly making a difference towards um, treatments for patients, treatments for potentially for myself, uh, that's all I need to get up in the morning. And um, basically the discovery that started Koya was founded by um, one of the leading neurologists in Houston, Dr. Stanley Appel, and he discovered that all neurodegenerative disease drives inflammation. And as the body experiences an overblown amount of inflammation, it damages one of the most important immune cells that controls the inflammatory system called the regulatory T cell. And now without a control system, uh, if you have a driver of inflammation and nothing to, to reduce it, you have an even worse uh, amount of inflammation in the body. And that drives degeneration and eventually death. You know, whether that be ALS, Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, MS, some autoimmune diseases, despite whatever the initial insult, maybe motor neuron death occurring or beta amyloid plaque buildup, the body's response to all of those things is to increase inflammation, to, to deal with them. Um, however, that sends this cascade of basically a forest fire in the body, destroying everything else. And so what we can do is we can modulate and increase the efficacy uh, of regulatory T cells and concurrently bring down the inflammatory level in the body through a biologic. And what we've shown most recently in a proof of concept study in ALS is that we have the ability to stop the progression of the disease almost completely over a year. Now, if you look at you know, a control group of ALS patients, you know, probably have heard that ALS patients die within two to three years of diagnosis. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's a very rapid, awful disease. What we've done by reducing um, the degradation of, of the disease to over one year, negative one and a half points on the ALS FRS scale, hopefully will lead to um, a paradigm change in what it means to be diagnosed with this disease. You know, currently, if you're diagnosed with ALS, it's it's a death sentence. Right. Our goal is that we can do something like done for HIV and AIDS, a disease that killed people in two to three years, and now people live full productive lives, twenty or thirty years, with the disease. You know, that's what we're hoping for. Um, and so to be a part of that and to be on this small team, you know, I'm not moving forward the science, I'm more moving forward the uh, operations and back end of the company. Uh, but, you know, it is a team effort and it is just the, you know, the most incredible thing I've ever done in my life. It's pretty amazing. You, you're definitely a, I mean, gosh, you're mechanical engineer, not easy to get. MBA, not easy to get, great combination. Uh, and you said uh, financial? Uh, so I used to work in wealth management. You're not a dude sitting around waiting for something to happen to you. You're a dude who's making it happen. So I love that. I mean, honestly, I love that you found out about your genetic situation and you're able yes. to be proactive. And not just for you, but for others. Like, what a great story of hope. And 
based on what you just said, and I'm no, trust me, I'm not that smart. Um, like there's hope for you even based on what you're doing at Koya Therapeutics. I mean, is that an accurate statement? So I think it is. You know, my goal at Koya is to, to hopefully one day move things forward where we can have clinical trials run for the presymptomatic patients, you know, uh, as a, not as an employee of Koya, but just as a patient looking at our data. It, it seems as if this would be even more efficacious given before the onset of disease. You know, uh, every... <clears throat> Doctor in the neurology space says that the earlier you, the earlier in the disease progression you can provide treatment, the more effective that treatment will be. However, they're kind of handcuffed to only provide treatment once diagnosis occurs. You know, our goal in the presymptomatic community is not we, we do not want to get ALS and then be treated. We want right. to be treated before we yeah. get the disease and hopefully never get the disease. Right. Uh, you know, and trying to change that entire regulatory process. Um, so talking to the FDA, talking to governmental organizations who are involved in uh, those rights is, is a big part of what we do. But, you know, currently in the, in the therapeutic pipeline of drugs focused on ALS, um, I am most compelled by the one we're creating. That's amazing. I look back at even, I mean, like you said, ALS was, is kind of a death sentence. Like you hear those words and that's, that's not a good day. Cancer was the same. And now there's so much hope when you, when you are diagnosed with some type of cancer, not all, obviously um, there's work to be done and cancer is so, uh, squirrely you know it's just like there's it's just so different everybody this is so different but it's not an automatic death sentence when you hear that word anymore and i feel like you guys are pushing the envelope with als and other uh ftds familiar fami say that for me familial ftd is frontotemporal dementia dig it well i feel like there's hope. I feel like it's it maybe early. I, obviously, it's early. And you're pushing the envelope and creating that hope. And, and I love that. I love that you whew, dove into Unbound and showed up at that starting line. And obviously, that's why we're talking here today. If, if you did some criterium in downtown Houston, I don't think it would be the story that it is when you're pushing your bike for four miles through the mud and through thunderstorms and your body is cramping and you can't ride your bike up a hill. And I mean, that's a, that's a, that's a good story. Obviously more than, like I said, a 45 minute. 100%. I, I, crit. I, I, I do love a good crit though. <laughs> oh, I do too. I do too. For sure. I love going fast on my bike. I, I love yeah. elbow to elbow and, and uh, <laughs> flying around quarters at 35 miles an hour. For sure. I love that. But it's, it's, it's not unbound, that's for sure. It's a different animal. You know, someone said, is, is, all of the other disciplines of cycling, mountain biking, road, I guess cyclocross has some, they're all, you're, you're mostly on the bike. <laughs> you know, 
unbounds different animals. <laughs> yep, yep, for yeah. sure. Um, you know, I've, I've also been fortunate to do a few cyclocross races here at our local uh, velodrome, Alkek Velodrome, and they are, I think, you know, there's there's just too much fun to be had on the bike in every which way. And, uh, you know, my wife would say, Daniel, you are addicted to riding bikes. And I think, what a great addiction to have. You know, it's just like, uh, I wish I could be on my bike far more often. Uh, will you try Unbound again or is that one and done? So I thought it was a great race. I thought there was definitely some of the best riding I've ever done out in the Flint Hills. You know, some of those uh, hill climbs were brutal. The descents were fast and furious. Uh, the scenery was gorgeous. I think I'd go back. Uh, I don't think I'm going to try 200 miles ever again. Uh, you know, that's just like if you completed this year's 200 mile race or the, the XL, which is even oh. crazier, like you deserve a serious pat on the back because. Um, that is not what a normal human should be able to do. <laughs> and uh, I think I learned that. And yeah, it's, so I, I think I now strive for, you know, races in the 30 to 100 mile uh, realm. Um, but these mega endurance races, you know, that might not be my thing. I, I'm much more of a, you know, I want to do 45 minutes as hard as I can. Yeah. You know, cyclocross race, Zwift race, or crit. Um, my wife would prefer, you know, the safest of those options, uh, cyclocross or Zwift. I mean, Zwift. Yeah. Zwift. Zwift. If you crash when you're Zwifting, we have (laughs) something to talk about. (laughs) Yeah. That's a whole nother story. Yeah. yeah. Um, but, but yeah, you know, we're going to be in Colorado for a bit of the summer and looking forward to doing some great riding out there. And Houston's not a cycling Mecca. Uh, but just hoping that Unbound is the first of many trips to beautiful places to do more cycling. Because, you know, as someone who knows that his future is not guaranteed as of this moment, uh, I really want to take advantage of, of all the beauty this, this country and this world has to offer. And I think the bike is the best way to experience a lot of that. Yep, I couldn't agree with you more. It's been a pleasure to chat with you, and I really appreciate you coming on. Thanks so much, Dave. It's been an awesome pleasure. Great to get to know you and great to share the story. Thanks so much. Ooh, it's hard to imagine getting news like that. But how cool is it that Daniel has taken life by the horns and has begun imagining a future without ALS? If not for him, but for his children and all his family for generations to come. It's a beautiful story. And I'm sure he'd appreciate all of our support in spreading the news of his nascent organization and the legacy. If you'd like to support it financially or find out more, head on over to givebutter.com backslash and the legacy. You can also find him on Twitter at, you can find him on Twitter and Instagram and I'll put links in the show notes. If you'd like to find out more about his work at Koya Therapeutics, click on www.koyatherapeutics.com. Of course, I'll have links to all of that in the show notes. Thanks, Daniel, for all you're doing to be proactive in this work. And thanks tons for coming on the Bike Talk with Dave podcast. 
Speaking of that, if you do enjoy this little podcast, I would welcome you to rate and review on your favorite podcast service. And please consider subscribing so you don't miss an episode. And if you really dig it and would like to support the show financially, look for Bike Talk with Dave at buymeacoffee.com. Again, there's a link in the show notes. And if you do, I'd be happy to send you a sticker. Thanks tons to Chain and Spoke Coffee for supporting the show. If you can't make it to the shop at 28th and Ingersoll, you can order the beans for home brewing at chainandspoke.com. And if you are rolling through Des Moines, hit me up on Instagram or Facebook at Bike Talk with Dave and we'll meet up for a chat at the shop. Thanks also to bikeiowa.com for being the online host of Bike Talk with Dave. BikeIowa.com has one of the most extensive bike event calendars around. And if you're wanting to promote your event, it's simple and free. All you have to do is create an account, enter your event information. You always have access to edit and keep your information current and up to date. There's no reason not to join the Bike Iowa calendar. One of the events that's on that calendar and you are going to want to put on yours is the Core 4 where no surface is left untouched. Check it out. When the folks at Core 4 say no surface untouched, they mean it. Champagne gravel, pavement, speedy single track, and all the level B roads. Core 4 doesn't stop at four surface types. They've got an ethos to get all bodies on bikes, and it comes through initiatives which support socioeconomic justice, gender equality, and bike advocacy. It's all about community, opportunity, recreation, and engagement at Core 4. Go early, bring the fam, they've got everything. Bikes, bevs, packet pickup party at Big Grove, live music, free camping, and finish line fun for all. Do not miss the No Surface Untouched action in Iowa City on Saturday, August 19th, 150 and 25 mile options. Follow along on Instagram at Core4Bike and get in the lineup. Thanks again for listening. Next week, we've got a full hour with Mountain Bike Hall of Famer, Susan DiMatte. I hope you can join us. I hope you have a great week of riding and I can't wait to meet you out on the trail.